Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Kutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Brent Collier. Tickets available at strangerealitiesconference.com. It's going to be amazing. Well, welcome uh, to the Conspiracy Normal. You'll hear me say that again. But uh, we just did an interview with Jonathan Vankin and... Uh, you guys are going to hear that in a little bit, but I thought that I would talk some about my experience that I had over the last uh, couple of weeks. So you guys may have noticed that I sounded a little ill and under the weather on the last episode. Yeah, I don't know. it was tough editing all your sniffles, man. Yeah, yeah. You had to tell me at one point just to mute myself because of all the <laughs> sniffles. So basically what happened, we're recording this on Wednesday, September 1st. Basically what happened was uh, last week on the 23rd, I started feeling a little bad. And I had basically what felt like to me like a sinus infection i had like some some congestion a cough a little bit of a sore throat not too bad um and i really felt like i could have probably have gone into work that night um 
you know, I've gone into work sick as a dog before, but you know, it being the time of COVID, I didn't think that was a good idea, especially after I took my temperature and my temperature was about a hundred degrees. So I decided to stay home and I'm glad that I did. The next day I went and I got a COVID test just to be safe. Just so, you know, I could tell, I could just show, try to be responsible, show work that I could come, that that it wasn't COVID, all this type of thing. Well, of course, it took two days for me to get the test results back because the little clinic that I went to in the grocery store, they did not have uh, any rapid tests. So I had to take the two day, the two, the test that gets back to you in two days. Well, last Thursday, I found out that my sinus infection slash cold that I was feeling was actually COVID. And so I have been in quarantine now for, I'm almost at the end of it and I'm feeling a whole hell of a lot better, but never at any point did I like lose like my sense of taste or smell. Uh, nothing really went into my lungs. I did have some pain in my chest, but that was from coughing just so much. I was able to pretty much manage the thing with like mucinex and cough syrup, vitamin C, zinc, those type of things. And the reason that I was able to do that is because I really firmly believe that it was the vaccine because I got vaccinated, fully vaccinated at the end of March. And I did have a breakthrough case of what I do think is probably Delta. And for me, it was pretty much a cold and I was miserable for a few days and I've been going sir crazy, but I'm still here and I'm still alive. And I can't honestly imagine what it would have been like if I was not vaccinated. Um, I think it would have been a whole hell of a lot worse. So that's pretty much been my experience with it. I didn't even feel as bad as you did, Sergio, back when you had it last year. Right. But um, it's Probably still because been, you're vaccinated. Yep. And it's still with the time that you that you got it back in November of last year, I think was when it was. You felt uh, just awful. And you actually did the show. And other than being bored, other than having a lot of congestion and headaches and those type of things, symptoms that have been perfectly manageable. I've been able to manage this thing just like I managed any kind of cold. But the whole reason I was able to do that is because I had gotten the vaccine. I'd gotten Pfizer back in March. And now I've got a whole bunch more antibodies to throw on top of that. And plus, but in November, I'll be getting my booster. And I just wanted to share that with everybody and let everybody know that I'm okay. I've I've kind of kept it a little secret. I've not blasted it out on social media. Um, I may post something tomorrow since I'm kind of at the end of this. I wanted to make sure that I was okay. But before I said any, really, really said anything. But um, I guess I really, what I wanted to kind of address with your help has been... Just from a few people, and I don't think they're people that really even have listened to our show. Very small amount, yeah. Very small amount that took some umbrage with us requiring the vaccinations, vaccination cards, our proof of a negative test at the conference. You see, if you guys 
haven't been listening to the show or you've been under a rock or you're just picking the show back up from like episode 150 or something like that we are doing the strange realities conference we are still going to do it here in nashville um some of the speakers are going to be here in nashville some of the speakers are going to be in on in the in the cyber realms but uh we are still doing it and we felt and we came to this like it was a real difficult decision because we really didn't want to do it but we felt that with covid just like raging as much as it has been in nashville that it made sense for us to ask for those proofs uh those two different proofs and then also to like actually just go ahead and limit the in-person um attendance which is about 40 people of which we sold, I think, about 25 of those tickets so far as of this recording. Yeah, and while we encourage everyone to get vaccinated, there is the option to just get a negative test. So why would anyone have anything negative to say about that? Yeah. Um, unless they, you know, are are entertaining multiple conspiracy theories at the same time that may, in fact, contradict each other, which is something we'll talk about later, but... Um, I think at this point, most uh, people, no matter how conspiracy-minded you are, should at least um, acknowledge that it is real at this point, and that Delta is worse. Uh, No, that can't be everybody, of course, but um, if you don't think the vaccines work, or you think the vaccines are bad, then you probably do have to come to the conclusion that COVID is actually real and can be deadly as well. But I don't know how people sort all this shit out in their mind so simultaneously. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's not... Um, it's not our purpose to, like, offend anybody or do anything, but we just want to make sure that we're doing the, we're doing the right thing. Yeah, and just, like, this has kind of caused some soul-searching, like other things in the past have for us, and, like, who we are what we want to be, what we never intended to be. And my big thing is just that like we never intended to be some kind of source of up-to-date alternative news that you should rely upon to make life and death decisions for yourself and your family. We've had a lot of crazy ideas that we explore, different points of view, different conspiracy theories, etc., Um, but we never, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of living in this like bad cyberpunk movie where they think they're like this, uh, you know, Bill Cooper figure on the internet or something who's going to like hack through the cable signal, you know, and tell the truth to the masses or something like that. But, uh, that's cool if that's what you want to be. And you think you could really suss out everything going on in the world and you know who the real puppet masters are. But that's really just not who we are. And, you know, that catches anyone by surprise. I don't (laughs) I don't know. I feel like you haven't really been listening to the show, but yeah, if you have not listened, I mean, if you've listened to the show any time last year or through this year, you guys should know where we come from on this. I don't think that that's anything that's a surprise. And us, um, you know, one person said that we, you know, we got, we'd given away our values somehow um, by asking for this proof of vaccine cards at the conference for money. I mean, I find that pretty laughable. 
in the fact that you guys think that we're just rolling in dough. Right. Or that like, uh, if we wanted to make more money, we would try to pack the place and not require anything. Right. Why would right. we do that? That's counterintuitive. Right. Yeah, we, we're restricting... You know the ticket. The, we're restricting the ticket tier that we can make the most money off of. You know because those tickets are forty dollars uh, more than the price of the online ticket, in which we're going to be pushing the cheaper option just to keep them safe, just to keep us keep people and us safe. Um, you know it, it's it's really bizarre and really surreal to see these type of comments on our stuff. And it hasn't been many. It's just been a couple of the people that decided they wanted to put their 50 cents in. It's really bizarre and surreal for me to be sitting here dealing with having COVID. And to be honest, even though that I was, it was a cold, you know, I was still monitoring myself and making sure that I wasn't going to take a turn for the worse, you know, cause you don't know what could possibly happen. But I was okay. But it was a surreal damn experience to be dealing with that and seeing these, um, seeing those those couple of posts on our YouTube channel or Twitter, or whatever. Real bizarre experience. It's like here I am actually dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, we we come from and and our guests that you're going to hear. I mean, between all of us, it's a a lot of years knee deep in the conspiracy culture um, with a context of that through the decades. Um, we see a lot of the stuff, these narratives come and go. It's just wild to think that we're just being apologists for whatever nefarious forces of the new world order <laughs> or that we're authoritarians, which is the furthest thing from, uh, you know, what both of us are. And, uh, you know, like uh, like I said in this episode, you'll hear we're not trying to be draconian by requiring this at the conference. You know, all these these discussions about what measures states and local governments should or should not take. This is this is all up for discussion. But the problem is, as a as a nation, we haven't been able to and much less as a world, you know, we haven't been able to have these discussions because we can't even agree that this is a real deadly thing that objectively exists. Um, if you want to have those discussions, then we have to be able to agree on on just certain points of reality, which we haven't been able to do. So that's that's one thing. Another is just that you know we talk a lot in this talk about how this information war that's been going on around COVID, you know, might serve as a test run. People are definitely observing it for the future. And if we have worse things that happen, worse pandemics, what's going to happen then? Um, if they've, you know, people have learned how to just uh, destroy the information ecosystem um, for any kind of collective effort that we have to do as a as a country, um, say, you know, in the next decade, we are asked to come to assist an ally that we made promises or something like that. What's the first thing that a rival foreign power would do? They would just use all the channels that are already established there to try to flood the whole information ecosystem with shit. And, uh, you know, could we, what can we even accomplish anymore if we can deal with this? I mean, that's, there's a lot bigger, bigger questions. Well, everything has gotten so crazy 
recently. Um, I've kind of just been, I've been stuck here and I've just been, um, you know, but of course I'm not able to work, you know, I can't go anywhere. Um, just watching everything unfold on Twitter and on social media and, uh, from the whole ivermectin thing and <laughs> have you have you gotten a hold of any man? I, I did not get a okay. hold of any. I didn't. I, I did not go to get my sheep drench. Okay, um, which is some of the most ir- ironic stuff I've ever seen. People like using things that's meant for sheep and but we're the sheeple apparently. Um, it's just getting out of control, and I know that there's a vast majority of our listeners that are responsible people, and they understand that the level of discourse in this country right now is like probably the lowest I think I've ever seen it, and it's really getting worrisome, and it's really getting bothersome. And we're going to talk about some more of this with Jonathan Vankin. Of course, we just recorded that that part of the interview of the show, but. Um, it's I would just say just be careful out there people you know I mean try to stay healthy stay away from COVID Um, because you know even though like I'm fine and everything it's just it's been a big kind of interruption to everything that I've wanted to get done and and these type of things so you know it's just um, you just say st- stay safe out there you know that's like that's like that's the main thing and us wanting to keep people safe at our conference and not wanting to get people infected and these type of things even though there still may be a chance of something like that happening because um, we you know there's certain things that cannot be controlled so you know but we're trying to do the best that we can uh, this conference is a labor of love um, it's not something that we get a huge monetary uh, boon out of. We're not making millions of dollars. And every penny that we're going to make off of this thing is going to go right back into next year's conference. So, yeah. We're not – we haven't lost our quote-unquote values that I don't think we ever – those type of values we never have, and those are not the values that I want to have. So there you go. There is some hindsight now to this that has been going on for this long. And you can see the evolution of these conspiracy uh, narratives around COVID. You know, first it started with the Chinese bioweapon, which I think the jury's still out on. Uh, There's a lot of weird, interesting things. I'm sure that can be further explored. Who knows? Um, But it was a good way to, you know, stoke some nationalism. Of course, the... Last administration really uh, used it for that purpose, but then then came you know the idea of what are what are we gonna the discussions around what are we gonna do about it what measures are we gonna have to take uh, there was no vaccine in sight yet and that's when the uh, whole you know it's not actually dangerous conspiracy theories started uh, relying on well supposedly you know widespread statistical manipulation. And so that was the conspiracy theories against the lockdowns, against the masks, and was probably more about uh, certain forces resisting the widespread government assistance that a real lockdown would have taken. But then came the vaccine and the anti-vax shit story. And so either COVID doesn't need a vaccine because it's not a big deal, 
But now a lot of the criticism of the vaccine is what's happening to you in these Delta cases and the fact that some people are still dying and things like this and relying on the same statistics that are being accused of being manipulated at first. So like this, it's just crazy, man. There's so many loops and all this and it's so self-generating and uh, getting to the point where like no matter what comes out, no matter what the truth is, there'll be another explanation, another conspiracy theory. It's just like we have enough hindsight now to see how these ideas have been evolving in individuals. Uh, so, you know, there's enough there to really start picking this stuff apart and and realize that, you know, the majority of it is total bullshit. And there is an objective reality to this, and it is deadly, and it's touched enough people's lives now where it's really hard to keep keep this up. Yes. And you bring out a good point, because I know one thing that people are going to say when they find out that, like, oh, well, Adam, you know, you got vaccinated, you still got COVID. And it's like, yeah, I did. I had cold-like symptoms for a week and a half. I'm still dealing with a cough. You can probably hear it. But (laughs) that's all I had. So the vaccine does work. It's just that Delta finds it's a way to, to break through. And I knew that me feeling like this sinus infection, I knew could potentially be it because I had read and I have been keeping up with kind of the latest news and everything about it and said that some people might think they have a sinus infection and won't go get themselves tested. And it actually is COVID. So, so the numbers are probably a lot larger than even the supposedly manipulated. I feel that I'm living proof right now that the vaccine does work. So much so that I think it finally convinced my mother to go get vaccinated. It had to take COVID, me to get COVID, which is not something I ever wanted and that I tried to avoid for a year and a half. But uh, (laughs) I'm here today, I think, and I'm not in the hospital on a ventilator because our, even in the hospital period, because I got I did the right thing for myself and for other people who got vaccinated. Yeah. Listen to your doctors. Don't listen to us. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of, uh, tragedies that we haven't discussed on here because stuff is too personal. Mm-hmm. But right. Exactly. You know, it's like, Oh no, don't listen to us. We're not trying to be your news source, you know, Sometimes you do have to defer to experts, and um, I'm sure you have, if not for yourself, you have a lot of people in your family who have been um, assisted greatly by modern medicine, and you haven't had all these diseases that previous times did because of it. Uh, So, you know, listen to your doctor, not us. Conspirator Normals never try to be your up-to-date news source for life and death situations. We're just here to talk about weird shit. (laughs) That's right. And I'd love to just talk about weird shit. That would be awesome. And not have to talk about this. It would be nice. It would be nice if all this never happened. But it is what it is. So, 
All right, I think that's it. Um, is there anything else that you want to say? No, we'll leave it at that. Check out this okay. awesome interview, Jonathan Vankin. All right, awesome. Thank you, guys. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. It's your host, Adam, and uh, Sir Fiel is here as well. Still remote. Yeah, still remote. Um, <laughs> and I guess you may have heard why our intro section, but um, we're happy to uh, get somebody that um, has been a, an influence on me, directly or indirectly. Uh, when I was in high school, I was... This dates me a lot because there's this thing called Walden Books. And I remember going into Walden Books and picking up a book called The 50 Greatest Conspiracies that I'm holding in my hand that no one can see. And it uh, was written by a gentleman named Jonathan Vankin and John Whalen. Well, we have Jonathan Vankin here. And so we're going to talk about his latest book, which is called Close to Zero how Donald Trump fulfilled his apocalyptic vision and paid his debt to Putin with the devastating biological warfare attack on America. So, uh, yeah, that's quite a title. Incendiary. And I guess we're going to find out all about that. It's a a great book. Um, I read it um, over the last uh, couple of weeks, and um, it definitely gives you some food for thought. But, uh, Jonathan, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Hey, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. yeah, it's great to have you. Um, like I said, I'm a I'm I'm a big fan. Um, that book probably was the reason why I got interested in a lot of this stuff to begin with. Um, I was telling you earlier that I used to go in the bookstore because I didn't have any money to actually buy it, and I would just sit there and read it. And that was kind of like one of my first. I mean, first time I'd ever heard of something like James Shelby Downard was uh <laughs> was from from your book and uh which you know of course that kind of was in a weird way brought which brought me and surfiel together later on um but also just things like about like the godfather part three the real story jim morrison survived his death those type of things um and uh that book is actually you said this it's had a, a whole bunch of uh different versions over the years yeah, I guess it went through five editions. So it was the it was the fifty, the one that you had there, and Ooh. then about a year later, we did uh, Waylon and I did the sixty greatest conspiracies of all time. Basically, just added ten new chapters, and then we did the right. seventy, then the eighty, and then the publisher wanted to go up to a hundred, so they renamed that book the world's greatest conspiracies. So we skipped ninety and went straight to a hundred, and and the book became the world's greatest conspiracies. So. They're still available out there somewhere if you can find them. Yeah, probably on Amazon somewhere. You know, I'm glad I'm glad you I'm glad you finally were able to afford it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I've had it for like 24 years, and um, it's one of those things that I will I will pick up every now and again and just read for fun. So it definitely it definitely has its uh, its uh, staying power for sure. Um. We were talking a little bit before we uh, just kind of got a pre-show banter. Being the guy that wrote what I guess pivotal book for myself, and here we are all these years later, and we're just kind of dealing with like all this kind of like 
craziness with the conspiracy theory world and all this like how do you feel about uh what's going on now well you know like i was saying to you before sometimes i wonder if like all this insanity is like not in some tiny tiny way like my fault because you know i know i know people read the book back in the 90s that that book the one you have and the previous one which i did just by myself called conspiracies cover-ups and crimes where Mm -hmm. you know in that book which i you know published a long time ago speaking of dating oneself you dated yourself you really dated me but that so <laughs> but I, I published that book um i guess in 1991 that first one and the whole idea of it was to you know explore this world and, and talk to a lot of the people who then were sort of the big names if you will in the conspiracy theory scene i guess you'd say if, if that if you can call it that but i did it from you know across the political spectrum i, I talked to people who were sort of left-wing right-wing whatever and um and then I tried in the second half of the book to to sort of go into their heads and research these things for myself and kind of make myself a conspiracy theorist as well and see how that went. So I think, you know, I think if a lot of people took it as me saying all this stuff is true, um, which I wasn't trying to say, but I was trying to kind of do a, a mental experiment and, you know, kind of open people's minds. Because, because the difference was back then, and again, we're talking about like the early 1990s, things were really different in that I felt anyway, that at that time, conspiracy theories were sort of a way of, you know, not, not I wouldn't say speaking truth to power because they're not necessarily true, but they were definitely a, a way of questioning authority, right? They were a way of sort of looking at things from this weirdly different radical way and kind of poke holes in like the consensus reality and, and the, 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 you know, the reality we're fed every day by the mainstream media and educate and so on and so forth. And I really thought back then, you know, conspiracy, then I think, I think it was right back then that conspiracy theories were a way of challenging that, you know, sort of like shaking you up and making you look at things a whole new way. And even if you didn't become a conspiracy theorist, maybe you wouldn't necessarily ever, you know, be quite as accepting of, you know, the propaganda that we're surrounded by every day as maybe you were before. Um, now, whatever it is, 30 years later, I think the conspiracy theories, if you want to call them that, are, are the propaganda. Right. And, they have, and they have become the tools of authority and the tools of power to, you know, manipulate the population or to, you know, brainwash you if, if that's, you know, if you like that term. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think they're being used that way. So it's, it's a whole new it's just a whole new corruption of these of conspiracy thinking. I think that, you know, it's, you know, I never really, it, it, not that it's never been used that way before, because it certainly was, but more on much more small scale, at least in this country, I think it's the type of thing that you would find like in cults, you know, like a, any, any cult, whether it was the Moonies or the LaRouches or whatever, you know, the leader of the cult was always thrived on conspiracy theories and feeding them to his followers. And, you know, the idea that somehow everyone's out to get us, everyone's out to get me, the cult leader, and, uh, you know, you all have to rally around me and whatever. So that paranoia really fed his or her own personal power. But now you're seeing that played out on a nationwide scale. And, yeah. and you know, with the Trump cult and, and says it still exists and whatever you want to call it, you know, the QAnon cult and so, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's really been disheartening to me and distressing to see, you know, this 
way of thinking so degraded and corrupted. And I think, I think, you know, one big difference is one huge difference really does have to do with the internet. And it took me sort of a while to come around to this position because I guess I was sort of an early adopter of the internet and I thought it was great and it, and it is great in a lot of ways, but at the same time that it allows information sometimes good information to travel very quickly as you find in things like the Arab spring and protests where activists use the internet to get the word out when otherwise they would just be completely censored. It also allows a lot of really crappy information or false information to spread really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And I remember like back in, I guess it was 1997, John Whalen, my co-author on the greatest conspiracies series, and I wrote this piece for Salon, which was then a very new thing, salon.com, about the Princess Diana, well, the death of Princess Diana, but also how these conspiracy theories about her death spread instantaneously. I mean, literally, we, we tracked it out. And back then, it was what you had was, called, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was called the Usenet. And, uh, you know, yeah. before, before the days of these message boards and all the technology we have now and social media, the Usenet really was social media. And uh, we remember finding a post, you know, literally within a minute or so of her death being publicly reported saying, you know, the MI6 did this or with the Royal family, whatever. And, you know, and again, it's not to say I, I don't really have any theory one way or the other as to who did it. And in some ways I don't particularly care, but it's, but what was interesting to me, was that these conspiracy theories would be formulated within within seconds, whereas when you look at a lot of the a lot of the ones that I wrote about in the books, like going back to the JFK conspiracy theory, you know, those took a couple of years at least to really yeah. sort of gestate and come to fruition. And the people who 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 advocated for them and who wrote about them really did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe in some cases they didn't completely interpret the facts they found correctly, or they went off in some weird direction that they, you know, maybe shouldn't have Though in some cases, maybe they should have. Um, but, but it was definitely the result of work and an intellectual process and, and a form of reasoning. Whereas now there's, it's just short, it's just a way to short circuit your, your reasoning and your critical thinking. You know, I mean, that's, you just immediately latch on to whatever, you know, yeah. cliche or, or, paradigm is out there about you know who did this who did that don't believe the media this don't believe this and it's just and that's where it becomes propaganda because to me like one of the main purpose of propaganda is to short circuit your rational thought so you don't ever question anything you just sort of accept what you're fed and that's that's what's going on now and it's you know it's a little depressing to tell you the truth to me well, it's, it's, uh, the internet decontextualizes everything. So before maybe, you know, you get introduced like Adam reading a book like yours, and then you look up authors, maybe you get some zines or, you know, end up, you know, checking out some alternative information sources, newsletters, radio programs, but you're, you're in like an ecosystem then that has some kind of context and different perspectives. But like now everything is just out there with no kind of no kind of bumper to it no barrier and it's just consumed by people who have no context with where these types of ideas come from we had uh, yeah that's a great point i think sorry i didn't interrupt you but i was just gonna say that's a really great point that uh 
you know, th- there was there was a context to it in those days. And you did, you know, I mean, even in my books, I included a lot of endnotes and footnotes and sources. So it's like, oh, if you read the chapter on, you know, I don't know, JFK or whatever, there's sources listed at the end. And maybe you'd be curious and maybe go, oh, I should read that book. I should read that book. And then it builds on itself. It's not just somebody telling you what to think. And then you repeat it, you know, because some weird so-called inside source on the Internet told you that it's true. You know, it's oh, good Lord. Like now, literally, you know, a meme, a picture and some text. And that is all that it requires to spread like a virus. <laughs> Nothing complicated. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We had uh, a few years ago, we had Ken Thomas on. Uh, we talked about his book called Trumpocalypse Now, which I guess kind of in, in many ways um, really kind of uh, explores the same kind of territory that, that you explore in Close to Zero. But I mean, his whole thesis of that was, was that uh, conspiracy theory had just basically been co-opted by uh, the right wing, essentially – and was being used by the Trump campaign in a way to, as a as a political tool. I'm I'm curious, um, just if there's a point that you can see where things really kind of started to really shift. Um, that that kind of like, uh, I don't really want to say the word use the word innocence, but I guess it lost its innocence. It's lost its its sense of fun, and has now become much more serious and a problem well i mean i think i I mean i think the princess diana thing that i just mentioned was something was a inflection point um i think it was just really just a few years later maybe just a year or two later with the twa 100 crash um was the same thing you know you had all these conspiracy theories circulating on the internet within minutes of you know this unfortunate plane going down um so I think, you know, there, there's where one of the first times that you saw this type of thing circulating at this lightning speed, thanks to the internet. But I think, you know, I mean, I think when do these really start to take hold as propaganda tools? I mean, probably, I mean, you could, you know, it's hard to pick one point because really that goes back a long, long way. But in terms of the, what we're seeing now, modern day, I mean, I would trace it maybe back to, you know, Clinton era, really, where where you had all these conspiracy, you know, and you still have them, these conspiracy theories about the Clintons. And again, this is not to say one thing or other about the Clintons, you know, there's an endorsement of them just to say that a lot of these conspiracies about Bill and Hillary were insane. You know, these conspiracy theories that that were all about, you know, the Clinton kill list and the drug dealing and all this just crazy stuff that had nothing to do with anything. I mean, you can make a lot of legitimate criticisms of Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, or you can say a lot of good things about them, but, but that stuff was just, was just nuts. And, and, but yet I think that's where it really started to take hold in terms of, of, of being this kind of, uh, you know, right-wing propaganda, I guess you'd say the sort of mechanism of control where you're really trying to, you're truly trying to cut out any actual debate about, anything that's real you know it's like all right you don't like bill clinton let's talk about his policies let's talk about things that he's done or hasn't done let's talk about his belief it's like but it's none of that it's like oh let's talk about how you know the clintons murdered vince foster well Mm -hmm. whoa hey Mm -hmm. you know that's evil that's terrible and so immediately your your thought process is just sort of 
like I say, short-circuited, just cut off. And I think probably I would go there if I were to say that's the real kind of turning point to become where we are, to, to get to the point where we are now. And since then, it's just accelerated. You know, it's accelerated partly thanks to the internet and just partly thanks to the circumstances in the country and the politics of the country. And certainly, you know, in the Obama years, you saw it. Um, I mean, you can't really get away from the fact that a lot of what we're seeing now is just some other expression of racism and anti-Semitism. I mean, these things go back a long way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the, uh, the underlying sort of racial elements are what you really saw, like in the Obama years. I mean, to me, I remember, I remember like, must have been not just a week or two into his presidency in 2009, mm-hmm. seeing like these clips on the news of people at these so-called town hall meetings, just crying their eyes out and like, Oh my God, I, my country is gone. I want my country. Back. It's like, why, what did right. this guy, what did this guy do in this incredibly short period of time that stole the country from you? Well, yeah. you know, what he did was become president while being a black person. So, you know, and that, that I think is what really, has triggered a lot of people, um, which is obviously sad. I think a lot of this is from the Obama years. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it does come from that. And, and a lot of it is a backlash, not to reduce it all to one thing, but a lot of it is a racial backlash. I feel like the the internet and the critical mass of conspiracy theories becoming popularized, the growth of social media, because post 9-11, you kind of had what you had in the, in the eighties and nineties also, where you had this like common anti-establishment and a lot of libertarian types and people on the left and right kind of all against the imperialism and, and uh, policies of the Bush administration. I mean, this is a time that like Alex Jones would have guys like Gore Vidal or like yeah. Greg Palast and these people on his show. I remember, you know, all that quite well. But then it's like that oppositional energy once Obama came into the office and that oppositional energy was hidden this critical mass. It feels like it just all got funneled into the right. And it hasn't, you know, it's been like that since. Yeah. I mean, but then also what you're talking about, like the horseshoe theory, as they call it, is real. I mean, when you get out under those fringes, the mm-hmm. left and the right really aren't that far apart. And that, you know, that's something that's been true for a long time also, but I think it's become a lot more kind of evident lately, sort of in in a very public way. I mean, even if you go back to like the seventies and eighties, especially in Europe, there was this sort of, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was called like the third way or something like that. That was this intersection Mm -hmm. between these sort of ultra left groups, you know, like the red brigades and these communists, at least nominally communist groups and these fascist groups that existed in, in Europe at that time, like the P2 lodge and that sort of thing, you know, they had a lot of common interests and sort of, cooperated on, on, on various acts of terrorism and sabotage and sort of, so, so there is that weird nexus between the extremes of politics. And, you know, it's hard because, you know, it's like, on one hand, it's like, I don't particularly like being labeled a quote unquote centrist. I mean, I never thought myself about myself that way at all, but once you get onto the far, far, far fringes of these ideologies, it just gets really dangerous. You know, yeah. and I think it's not so much about an ideology of centrism or leftism or rightism. It's just about using your brain and using your critical thinking capabilities if you have them. You know, right. which unfortunately a lot of people 
that that seems to be a real problem is that critical thinking really isn't taught very very well anymore and then people get on to um you know we had eric davis on the show not that long about uh, last year towards the end of last year and he was you know he talked about how people are basically have come into their own kind of like chapel perilous state now especially since you know we had the lockdowns and the quarantines and you know people just got so just wrapped up into the like the internet was always there always pervasive and to kind of uh, also just just your point about the whole Vince Foster thing i mean that uh, to me, just kind of looking back on it now seemed to have been a huge linchpin because it definitely was something that came back in 2016, you know, just the whole Clinton kill this thing and all that. So, I mean, that seemed to be the start of uh, using kind of conspiracy, a, a quote unquote conspiracy or a theory as a as a political tool. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I don't even, I don't even really like to use the word conspiracy theory anymore. Cause to me, to at least for this type of thing that we're talking about, because yeah. to me, like theory implies like some sort of intellectual process. Mm-hmm. Like if you've arrived at a theory, you've had to actually process some information and make, you know, informed or at least semi-informed decisions about that information, how you're interpreting it. But what we see now, these people aren't doing that. They're just, it's just a knee jerk. It's just, they're being fed, fed some sort of, propaganda and they're regurgitating mm-hmm. that to me isn't a theory that's sort of you know i don't even know what you would call it just conspiracy you know, beliefs or conspiracy propaganda or something but they're not really theories they're not you know they're not testable you can't falsify yeah. them it's it's almost just like an alternative news thing and and you know there's a big difference between like what we do which is just explore ideas a lot of them with uh historical hindsight you know, to make things clearer, uh, versus that. And like your Bill Cooper types or your, you know, firebrand, you know, guy on the radio or whatever, who's fighting the power and, you know, giving you a lot of people are wanting these like up to date blow by blow analysis of everything. And just like, how, how can you really parse things out? You know, when they're demanding such immediacy, like, Exactly. You can't. You can't. It's just you have to take a step back to really get a good idea of what's going on out there. You have to think. You have to read different sources. You have to evaluate them. And, you know, you can't just watch a YouTube video and decide that that's the truth because nobody else is saying it on, you know, the mainstream news. It's like it just doesn't doesn't work that way. And, I mean, you know, people I've heard people say, well, it's the fault of the education system or you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, yes, it is to some extent, but I just wonder, like, if it goes well beyond that, you know, I don't even know how much education, formal education is going to cure this illness yeah. that's going on. And I do, I do think it's an illness, too, because, like, I think the pandemic has really, for whatever reason, brought what seems to me to be this hidden epidemic of mental illness in this country right to the surface. Yeah. We were talking about that exact same thing. I mean, yeah, just yeah. so much craziness out there. I mean, more than before. Not that there wasn't uh, always plenty of craziness in this country, but you know, but but it just it's just amazing. Just the lunacy. It's it's you know, I think people are just there's a lot of people who need a lot of help. The school <laughs> and they're not board, getting it. The school board stuff is really bringing it out right now. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, this is cr- that's I don't know how crazy it is out there, but 
here in, in Tennessee, I mean, in a county just south of the one we're in, I mean, there was a, you know, huge uh, meeting where it just got completely just crazy a few weeks ago. And yeah. more and more people are just coming out of the woodwork and it's just more and more bizarre. And it's just more and more just these, these strange displays and people just, um, well, that one guy that the, with the dreadlocks that was down in San Diego, the guy that was screaming about, uh, the violating the Nuremberg code and all this stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, like what? Yeah. It's been a lot of that. I mean, here in California, like in it, I mean, here where I am, which is in Los Angeles County, not as much. I mean, I haven't heard too much of that stuff. I mean, there's some for sure, but I haven't heard too much of that sort of extreme craziness. We should go a little south into Orange County, particularly the city called Huntington Beach. Uh, mm-hmm. that you hear about that's been like a real sort of center of the whole like anti-masking, anti-everything, you know, COVID denying the whole thing. And then you go even further south towards the San Diego era, area. And, uh, yeah, you see a lot of that stuff going on. A lot of these crazy, you know, county board of supervisors meetings, and school board meetings, where you have these members of the public getting up and just, just spouting the most crazy violent rhetoric, really. I mean, that's what's, I mean, if it was just lunacy, it would be sort of amusing, but a lot of it is just, it's a little disturbing and frightening because it's, you know, there's a real threats of violence. And as we've seen, in the very recent past, these this violent rhetoric can very easily become violent action. And, you know, I mean, we were kind of lucky on January 6th that more people didn't die, that it wasn't more of a bloodbath. But the next one could be. And yeah. who knows what's going to happen? You know, it's, it's definitely, you know, a really perilous time here in this country. So, yeah, and like I say, it is, it is everywhere. It's not just in the southern states where you guys are, but it is out here too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, even in deep blue California. I mean, look, we've got in two weeks we've got this ridiculous recall election for our governor, who and somehow these people managed to get this recall vote on the ballot. And the way the recall is done out here, um, there's really no other state other than Colorado that does it this way, but. There's two votes, right? So the governor, Gavin Newsom, in this case, essentially runs against himself. So you have one vote where you vote yes or no. And if you vote no, I don't want him recalled. If he gets 50% plus on that, it's okay. He's still the governor. But if he gets below 50%, then there's a second list of candidates that does not include him. And whoever gets the most votes wins, no matter how few it is. So crazy. it's just insane. And, and I don't know how much of this you follow, but the guy who's leading and who almost certainly, if Newsom does not get the 50%, uh, the guy who's leading is this guy named Larry Elder, who is a, a sort, of, sort of right-wing extreme talk show host who's been around for a long time, but has gotten further and further and further out there. As a lot of people, I think, during the Trump era did. It's like, you know, people who already were kind of far right just went totally off the you know, because they had, they had sort of permission to do so from Trump and the Trumpists, I guess you'd say, and Elder's one of them. So, you know, he's basically promised to, when he becomes governor, to lift all the mask mandates, to put kids in school with no mask, you know, all the stuff that's going on in Florida and I guess Tennessee and a lot of those southeastern states and kind of upper Midwestern states, too. He's kind of find it in South Dakota and places like that. I mean, California 
the most populous state in the union with the 40 million people is going to be like that if this recall election doesn't go the way it should. And it can, and, it, and literally out of these 40 million people, probably it would take maybe one to 1.5 million to elect this guy. It's just madness. And, yeah. but it, it could happen here on September 14. And, you know, obviously we're all hoping, well, obviously not all of us, but certainly everyone I know is hoping that it doesn't happen. And, uh, you know, Hopefully, it's all about turnout here. If people turn out to vote, Newsom should be fine because he's actually quite popular. But, um, you know, I, there's nowhere there's nowhere that's immune from this type of thing yeah. these days. This, this stuff is really adaptable. And like you were mentioning, the, the marriage of like the extreme right and left in, in Italy um, back in the day. Now, you know, you kind of have this, the, the conspirituality or new age side of this that have been pushing these anti-vaccine narratives for so long. And now they're really being empowered by this. And then the evangelical side that we deal with here, you know, and it's like, they seem like they're polar opposites, but they're pushing a lot of the yeah. exact same narratives. And the new age kind of the tinge to it. That's a little bit more pervasive out there than it is here yeah you definitely get that i mean you get there's all you know california is a crazy place and there's always been a lot of weird stuff that goes on here i mean all the things you could hear about lately about florida you know the crazy people in florida and the florida man and all you know i, I remember when i was younger it used to be california that people would talk about you know it's like here's where you had the manson family and here's where you had right. you know right all these uh, jim jones and all these crazy crazy things and, uh, you know, it still exists here. I mean, literally right down the street from where I live is, was the Amy Semple McPherson, the, mm. her temple, you know, sort mm -hmm. of the first real televangelist on the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not very far from where I'm sitting right now. So a lot of this sort of fringy, new agey stuff it does still happen out here. And, and the, yeah, the anti-vax thing, I think, has really been centered, um, particularly in Northern California, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's a lot of it comes out of there. And now a lot of it's on Facebook. You know, you get these groups that are like these Facebook groups that are sort of like wellness type things and, and like natural parenting and natural childbirth. And you go in them. I mean, I haven't, but from what I've read, you go in them and before you know it, you're sucked into this whole anti-vaccine thing. And somewhere it's like, I don't know, it just makes people crazy. And I look at Robert mm -hmm. Kennedy Jr., you know, he's oh, no. this guy who's like, there was a time when he was like one of the leading environmentalists and was like a really strong voice for, you know, environmentalism and that sort right. of thing. And mm -hmm. some, I don't even really know where, because I don't follow his career that closely, but somewhere he like tipped into this anti-vaccine thing. And now mm -hmm. that's all he talks about. You know, that's sort of everything. It's like the anti-vaccine, anti-vaccine. It's like, I just don't get it. I don't yeah. get it. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how people get seduced by that this way you know i mean I, I get where you know there was this book this supposed study that's long been debunked about vaccines supposedly causing autism you know they don't um and all that alleged research has been utterly discredited but yet it continues and people just hang on to it and i just you know it's a weird thing i don't quite quite get it i think a lot of it centers on um People thinking that because something is oppositional or alternative, it's necessarily pure. And that's what I don't understand. It's like, yeah. they just stop right there. Like, oh, well, this is the real stuff. It's like, well, there's always some motivations going on behind minority opinions. There is often um, very organized interests also. And, you know, but somehow they just think, 
oh, it's alternative. Anything alternative is good. Yeah, and and a lot of this, a lot of these things have really been astroturf too. You know, I mean, a lot yeah. of like the anti-masking, the very not even anti-masking, like those original anti-lockdown protests that were happening. You know, in April of last year, when the pandemic yeah. was like less than a month old, there was people right. taken to the streets, and all those things were financed by by these right wing groups and the Betsy DeVos nexus was behind a lot of them, money wise anyway. So, you know, a lot of these things that seem like these grassroots, uh, like as you say, oppositional movements or oppositional ways of thinking, are really just more propaganda that's been planted. And it's hard to distinguish them sometimes. And I don't mean to discredit everything. I think, you know, I do think, I mean, that on that sort of wellness, whatever health thing, I think there's a lot of merit there. But again, it's like whenever you have something like that, as you say, there's this assumption that, oh, this is this is pure and this is good. And so that just makes it very easy for malevolent actors and malevolent forces to come in there and start shifting it around. And people don't, you know, it's hard to distinguish between the stuff that might be appealing and interesting about, oh, you know, health and how do we promote it and how, and the craziness, you know, just like, oh, well, everything that the medical establishment tells us is lies. They just want you to die or they just want you to spend money on pharmaceuticals. And it's like, you know, and again, also, you know, I think it's the same with any type of propaganda. It, it, it often plays on something that sounds good and maybe mm-hmm. has some reality to it. I mean, yeah. you know. There's certainly a lot you can say about pharmaceutical companies that isn't yeah. very good. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Uh, I never thought I'd be, you know, really in the position to defend until <laughs> until now. You know, well, the way that the way that I kind of look at it is that you have a pharmaceutical industry that's worth billions and billions of dollars, and you have a kind of more holistic type of health industry that is worth millions of dollars. And they want to get in on the business that the billion-dollar industries have. And so they feel that they should be in some kind of opposition uh, against them. Yeah, that's a great point, too. That's a really great point. People think it's a good guy, bad guy type of thing, but it really isn't. It's just they're both competing for the same marketplace. Exactly. It's competing competing interests trying to get their hands on the same – pool of dollars right oh let's talk about close to zero oh Um, let's talk about close to zero absolutely (laughs) currently my favorite topic yes yes um so uh what uh made you want to write a book about trump's response to covid what uh what inspired you to kind of to to do that it was i wouldn't exactly call it a labor of love but it was definitely a labor of (laughs) I guess you'd say a labor of anger or a labor of passion because, I mean, I started writing it really, I started researching it, I mean, pretty early on, like March of last year and started writing it in April. And, uh, you know, when the pandemic was still fairly new, but, um, you know, I was just, I guess like a lot of people, I was just really, really upset at what was going on, not just with the pandemic, obviously that's upsetting for everybody and scary, Mm -hmm. but with Trump personally, and the people around him, obviously, and to have what he was doing. And to me, I mean, I just looked at, you know, everything that he was doing. And, you know, it was, it was so often ex- trying to explained in the media as incompetence or, oh, he just is trying to get reelected. I'm not sure how 
killing everybody is supposed to get you reelected. But, you know, there was that and, and things like that. But to me, it's like I just looked at everything he did. And I thought, you know, with very rare exceptions, very rare exceptions, <laughs> basically everything he did not only did not make the problem better, it actively made it worse. Why? You know, I mean, to me, that's the question. Why? And I didn't see anybody else at that time, at least in a position to really ask him about it, asking him about it or asking even in general terms, like, why, why is he doing this? What is going on? Like, why is this guy, you know, telling everyone to go back into churches on Easter at a time when the pandemic was just really just picking up? I mean, it's just, that's just basically telling people to go in and get a fatal disease. And of course, at that point, you know, it wasn't, there was no vaccines and treatments were really, you know, in their infancy. I mean, basically, if you got COVID, you know, it could easily be a death sentence, particularly if you were in certain, obviously, certain categories of age or health status. So why why is he doing this? It's like, well, you know, he just wanted the economy to pick back up or whatever. You know, yes, I guess so. But it just seemed to me there's got, there had to be more going on there. So, so I just, you know, I just felt I had to say something. I mean, what can I, is, is that type of feeling where I'm like, well, what can I do? And also it was personal to me and that like, you know, I've got my mom who's 91 years old mm-hmm. and is doing great. Just saw her a couple of weeks ago. Um, she lives across the country, but I just saw her a couple of weeks ago. She's doing fantastic. Um, but at the same time, you know, she's 91 and at the time she was 90 And uh, I just knew, like, here's this woman who has, you know, done the right things and fought so hard her whole life to to be alive and to stick around, to see her family and all this other stuff. If she were to be cut down by this avoidable thing, uh, you know, I just don't even know how I would live with myself. So I just felt like I had to say something or do something. And what can I do? Well, you know, I kind of have one skill <laughs> and that's, that's, I can write right. and, re- and do research. So that's what I did. And I just uh, decided to write this book and, uh, you know, and here it is. And I feel like, you know, in my tiny way, maybe I've made some contribution. I just, you know, I would like more and more people to read it because I do think, we need to start thinking a little differently about this. We need to start thinking of it as a crime that was committed in this country. And again, I'm not talking about the whole world. I didn't really research like what happened in other countries, but in this country, it definitely did not have to be this bad. (laughs) You know, 600,000 people plus did not have to die. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. 
by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Right. It's, we're, we're, sitting, we're sitting at like nearly 660,000 right now. Yeah. It's, so it's, you use the term in the book, biological warfare attack. Um, and of course, you know, we're obviously referring to the virus, but you know, it, you don't necessarily say that you're not saying that like Trump unleashed the coronavirus. that's obvious, but, but what you are saying is that what he kind of did, the, what the things that his actions really helped to further it along. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm saying that opportunistically he did this on purpose. Like I, I, I think I make it very clear in the book. I'm not saying that this is a deliberately created bioweapon or anything like that. I mean, to me, the evidence, all the evidence I've seen says that that's not true. That's not the case. Um, so I'm definitely not saying that. And even if it were that, I don't think Trump himself is capable of engineering such a plot. But at the same time, he is an opportunistic person, kind of like Putin himself, his idol. And uh, you look at his whole life and career, and it's been a series of sort of finding opportunities and exploiting them, often, you know, stumbling into them, but but making the most of them. I mean, you know, as, as much of a bumbling idiot as he seems, look, the guy became president of the United States, you know, one of only at the time 45 people ever to do it. You know, that doesn't happen by accident. So he, he, he's, he might not be the world's most intelligent person. He certainly isn't, but he definitely has a type of street smarts or cunning where he kind of knows what he's doing. And that to me, and, and I cite in the book, and there's been others since, but I cite in the book other examples of, of these sort of horrible things that he's done, particularly like during the protests of last year what, that are clearly deliberate, where he's clearly, you know, and, and you look at even now, the, and this was sort of a, a, the last chapter in the book about what I call the pandemic push, you know, the, the, the insurrection, his attempt to overturn the election. I mean, as more and more um, information comes out about that, we see how deliberately planned this was and how methodical that he and his cronies were in going about this and trying, fortunately unsuccessfully, but trying to essentially stage kind of a coup and get the, legi- uh, the, the, the election results overthrown and reinstall himself as what would essentially at that point be a dictator. You know, if you're going to do that, you're not a president anymore. There's no real limit on what you're going to do. You're going to be a dictator. So, you know, that was a very deliberate effort. So for me, it's like I just use that type of thing to show how capable he is of this type of planning and this type of execution of a, uh, a malevolent plan. And that's why I call it a biological warfare attack. I mean, it wasn't he didn't create the virus, but at the same time, he used it. Uh, in a way that I think was consistent with a lot of other things that he did during his time in office, which ran counter to the national interests of this country and probably not counter to the national interests of his patron, uh, Mr. Putin. So, um, and Russia in general, which he's been infatuated with long before Putin ever even came to power. 
So, you know, it's a bizarre thing. I think as, as, as time goes on, there's going to be historians and investigative reporters who really dig into it because very few people really have, we don't really know what was going on there, but, um, but we know that something is going on. And I just think this is consistent with that pattern and is probably part of it. And it worked, you know? Well, he was, you know, it came out, I think, in the fall of last year, whenever he had spoken to uh, Bob Woodward, and that he said that he knew that this thing was going to be really bad and that he knew it was going to be more than just the flu and it would probably kill a whole lot more people. Um, so he had some... He had some foreknowledge, but he still kept trying to like play it down and not not take it seriously. You do a good job in the book of tracing how basically, you know, the first, uh, George W. Bush had this whole plan, and then Obama had a plan for to combat a potential pandemic, but then Trump just kind of pulled that out from under the rug. Well, exactly. And to me, it's like, not that there's a smoking gun in any of this, there's sort of circumstantial smoking guns. But to me, that's the closest thing to smoking guns. It's like, you know, if, if to counter the argument that he uh, sort of stumbled into this or was just too dumb to know what to do or thought it would just help him get elected or something like that, you have to ask then, well, why was he dismantling our, and his administration was dismantling our defenses against a pandemic you know, several years before this happened, or at least one or two years before this, this occurred. Why was he even doing that? You know, what was, what was going on there? So by the time a pandemic actually occurred, we were in the position where we were essentially defenseless. And that should not have been the case because it wasn't the case prior to his taking these actions. So to me, again, that's just another indicate indicator that, uh, that, that he had a, a large element of purpose and deliberateness in how he and how he handled this and how he inflicted it on everybody. Um, well, and not being able not being able to openly uh, come to those conclusions, you know, the media was just at a loss and trying to interpret everything he was doing. And like focusing a lot on, I know we talked a lot about uh, how much they focused on on his new thought philosophy from, you know, growing up and going to Norman Vincent Peale's church. And mm-hmm. they just kept on polling for anything to explain other than uh, intentional things like you're like you're postulating. Yeah. And like that, that I mean, the Norman Vincent Peale thing was kind of like a cult itself. And to me, that's sort of how, I mean, I kind of try to tie that into the fact that he himself became like a cult leader. I mean, he's, he's got his own cult. It's just a very, very, very big one. And, uh, you know, kind of like some other cults, now a lot of them are killing themselves in his name, basically. I mean, that's what's literally happening. So, but that, but it all kind of ties into what I call in the subtitle, his apocalyptic vision. And that he does, and he's made statements to this effect going back again, decades, really, to the 80s where he seems to feel that violence and mass destruction and riots are kind of good things. And that in the end, he will profit from the breakdown of society, from economic collapses, from rioting. And, you know, I cite a whole, in that chat, I think it's chapter two, I cite a whole bunch of quotes from him that are just on the public record where he's essentially said this exact thing that, you know, when things fall apart, that's going to be good for me. So 
this is what happened again. You know, I mean, things started really falling apart and why wouldn't he think what he's apparently felt his whole life, which is that, Hey, this is going to be good for me. I'm going to come out on top. So, and in the end, you know, did he come out on top? I don't know, but he certainly seems to have come out. Okay. He certainly hasn't paid, paid any consequences for anything that he did with regard to the COVID or anything else. So, you know, I mean, maybe he's been a little bit publicly annoyed by these impeachments, but there was no consequences for him. Yeah, it's, it's not over. <laughs> it's not over yet. But at the same time, at least so far, you can't say he was really wrong. And if he if, you know, if that was what he believed, which I think it is what he believed that, you know, he will profit from the destruction of society. And that's really what happened. So, you know, that's what I meant by his apocalyptic vision. So, you know, I use those terms in the subtitle partly just to kind of make the book stand out because I know there's a lot of other Trump books out there, but also because I think like we need to we need to speak very frankly about this stuff. I mean, why not use those? Why why would why are we pussyfooting around this this type of thing? You know, why why can't we just say exactly what it is? Yeah, I thought I thought he was the one who was all about, you know, calling it as you see it and shooting from the hip, right? Yeah. But, but we can't yeah. do it. We can't do it. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, you know, part of my hope is that people read this and see the subtitle, which I, you know, I think in the book, I explain at some point uh, uh, why I use those words. And for the exact reasons that I just articulated, which is we just need to start thinking about this in a different way and holding him and the others around him to some degree of accountability for this. It's like, how do you get away with this? How do you get away with completely, you know, inflicting this on the entire country for what's now going on to be a year, more than a year and a half or a year and a half and, and just be going about your business. like nothing happened. It's just absolutely amazing to me. So the main thesis is really that Trump saw this as a way of like causing this kind of like an, an apocalyptic event that people would clamor for him to lead. Basically. And, and yeah. You make that, you make a parallel with Charles Manson in there too. But the whole helter skelter thing, yeah, yeah, a little bit that. I also talk about Shoko Asahara, who was the yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> the cult leader in Japan behind the. Uh, this is again going back a ways, but nineteen ninety five. Can't remember exactly what year it was, but it was it, yeah. but the but this Tokyo subway attacks. Mm-hmm. Om Shinrikyo, I think it was called. Yeah, with Om Shinrikyo, and you know, which was a doomsday cult, basically an apocalyptic <laughs> cult, who believed as Manson believed that there was going to be this massive societal breakdown, sort of an apocalyptic Armageddon type war. And in the end, who was going to be left standing, but Shoko Asahara and his, and his followers. And Manson thought the same thing, you know, after Helter Skelter, he was going to be, he and his followers are going to emerge from this race war where everyone's killed each other and rule the world basically. And, and I don't think Trump's mentality is really all that different. Just got a lot more resources. It's got a lot more resources. So, you know, I'm waiting for someone to show me some definitive evidence that he doesn't think that way. Right. I haven't seen it. You know, it's just the positive thinking, man. That's all it is. It's the positive thinking. <laughs> I mean, he definitely believes in that. I mean, I don't think there's any question. Yeah, like he, yeah. he never will admit like anything is wrong. And I guess that's the one way that he's gotten through a lot of things in his life that shouldn't have gone the way they did. But, you know, it's a, again, it's really complex. I mean, certainly not many people would have survived, but, you know, it does help to have your dad give you $400 million when you're just starting out. <laughs> bootstraps. <That's, laughs> yeah, bootstraps. That, that kind of helps too. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there may have been some of that in that he just has this idea of um, that he just wants to wish something away. Because, I mean, you mentioned the whole Easter thing, and I remember that, where he was like, wouldn't it be nice if everybody could get together and go to church on Easter Sunday? It was almost like he was trying to will it into existence, you know? So he does have that. I think it might be a mixture of what you're talking about, that kind of apocalyptic vision. And then that kind of new thought mentality of like that kind of will to power. I can, if I will it to happen, it will happen type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you can't deny that that's there too, because he just made so many statements to that effect. I mean, first with the churches, but then, you know, he just kept saying it and saying it over. This is going to go away. I mean, it's like, and, a, it's and like even, a mantra you know, almost. Yeah. And even not just about COVID. I mean, of course, out here in California, quite famously around, around here, he, um, you know, came out here during the fires of not just pretty huge fires going on right now, but there was big ones last year also. And I remember he met with Gavin Newsom and some yeah. of the state officials. Mm-hmm. And like they said, they tried to get him to take the climate change factors that are involved in fueling these fires very seriously. And his response was, no, it's going to get cooler. It's just going to get cooler. It's like, no, it's not going to get cooler. Not unless we do something about it. But, you know, it's just, I mean, I guess he just thinks either he's just, you know, BSing his way through or he really thinks that just as long as you believe things are going to get better, they'll get better. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. He certainly thinks that for himself, if he believes things will get better, they will. Yeah. yeah. It's like I, I could definitely see how he would see that that's a political opportunist. But uh, some people would probably look at that and say, well, he lost. So this must have been a huge gamble. But also, I guess there was the the possibility that he probably really thought that since it was going to hit the Northeast, that that would take care of some political enemies, too. Well, we know that. I mean, I talk yeah. about that in the book, too, that like early on, you know, there was this decision made about not having a national testing program because they, they thought, well, this is really just affecting blue states. Now, that is a pretty stupid, short-sighted way to think, right. you know. I mean, why would you think about a, a, a virus that is only going to confine itself to certain states like New York and New Jersey? That's obviously not going to happen. But and, and now, you know, we see quite the opposite. It's really the red states, so-called, that mm-hmm, it's affected. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, but but he definitely thought and the people around him thought, too. So so really, you know, and that in other sense is a way that he was using this as a biological weapon to try to, if not wipe out, then at least cripple his political enemies. I mean, I think that's pretty clear also. Right, right. It's like almost like I'll show New York for what they... Because, I mean, like, if you talk to New Yorkers, like, they do not like Trump. No, they never did. Never did. (laughs) Yeah. Never did. He's He's not the most popular person in New York City. No, well, he was always sort of not just a buffoon, but, you know, just his real estate development was just awful and, you know, changed the landscape of the city and really, you know, it was just bad. So he was, he's always been really disliked there for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. So I could see how maybe he really thought, because there was like, I remember there was that, that, that thought that they had to like isolate New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut from the rest of the country. Apparently, apparently like he did quarantine it. <laughs> Yeah, he had this weird idea that you're just going to quarantine those states, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then he decided not to, you know, who, who knows? Sometimes sometimes it gets a little inscrutable as to what is really going on in this guy's addled brain. So who knows? But um, 
But ultimately, I think everything sort of points in this one direction that I argue in the book. And, and there's a there's a whole other thing too. Another aspect of this in which. Um kind of borrowing from Steve Vannon the kind of concept of flooding the room with shit or what is the what is the term that he used flooding the zone yeah. flooding the zone with shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Flooding the zone with shit because yeah, I mean it's a, this is a a propaganda model. And in the book I talk about that 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 um you know that's sort of a crude way of putting what the Russians use is what they what the Rand Corporation did this study on Russian propaganda. They call it the fire hose of falsehoods. You know, and the idea is basically that you flood the zone with shit, just throw things out there with no real worry as to whether you're being consistent or making a logical argument. Just throw stuff out there, because the point, again, like I was saying earlier, is is really not to make people believe what you're saying is to short circuit their ability to think for themselves and or to use any sort of rational process. And this has been a Russian propaganda technique for a long time. But it also is largely what, what, what Trump has done, which is just, just throw things out there and, and try to convince people that, you know, as he himself said, I think I quote in the book, you know, what you're seeing and what you're reading isn't what's happening. You know, you only believe me and I'm, I'm the only real source of information here. And once you've got someone to believe that, you can tell them anything. It doesn't matter if it contradicts themselves. And, and, and we know, you know, you look at the beliefs of, of a lot of these of the sort of Trump cult, the MAGA people, I mean, they all contradict themselves, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I could go on and on with the examples, but it's just, you know, I can't even think of any off the top of my head. There's so many, but there's so many of these internally contradictory positions, you know, first COVID's a hoax, but it's also a bioweapon started yeah. by China, but you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's something that we've definitely noticed as well. That's part of the point is what I was trying to say is that's part of the point is like these internal contradictions are, are appealing to a lot of his followers because it means you don't have to think you just accept whatever, even if what you're saying now completely contradicts what you're saying five minutes ago, that's fine. That's okay. You have license to do that. You know, you no longer are, are a thinking being. Yeah. So much for consistency. Yeah, right? exactly. It's very, very crazy. Uh, let's talk about Russia um, yeah. and talk about how at the very early days of the pandemic, uh, before it was even declared a pandemic, Trump had like actually been talking to Putin a lot at that, at that time. And basically how Trump kind of looks up to Putin and how he kind of like, in many ways really kind of follows the same model that Putin is going to use in Russia. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the first things that I, that I, you know, that sort of got me interested in this whole theme of the book was that on, I guess it was December 29th, you know, and this is the beginning of the book, actually, Trump is on the golf course down there at Mar-a-Lago, wherever the his golf course is in Florida, West Palm Beach. And he gets a call on his cell phone and it's Vladimir Putin. Like, why is he calling Trump's cell phone? And this was just two days before the Chinese first revealed to the World Health Organization that they had this problem. <laughs> they didn't specifically spell out that it was a coronavirus, whatever, but they, def- they, re- they revealed, like, we've got a problem. There's this uh, respiratory disease that's killing a lot of people here in our Wuhan province. Two days before that, Putin is calling Trump out of the blue to talk to him about what? I mean, the official story, the story that was in the, you know, readout of the call was that he was calling to 
thank him for for America's help in thwarting some terrorist attack in Russia. You know, maybe so. But I just find it really hard to believe that this coming pandemic would not have been mentioned in that call because, you know, as much as we worry about China and, and, and Russia and spying on those countries, it's like Russia and China have, I, I think it's the world's longest common border. And they've always been historical adversaries. They've kind of cooperated a little more in recent years, but they're, you know, they're historical adversaries for, for centuries. And there, it just is inconceivable to me that the Russian intelligence services would not have known what was going on and on, would have reported that back to Putin. And, you know, he would have reported to Trump. And I think it's pretty clear that the Russian intelligence services knew about it because our intelligence services knew about it. So even if Trump wasn't necessarily paying attention to U.S. intelligence, as he often, you know, was very often was very derisive of U.S. intelligence, he definitely paid attention to Putin, who clearly paid attention to his own intelligence agencies, himself having been a part of them for, for most of his career until about, you know, 2000 or so. So, you know, I, I would like to see someday an actual recording or transcript of that phone call. But then that was just the first phone call. I mean, they ended up speaking, I think it was nine times in the first four months or five months of the pandemic. And again, why? Why are they talking so often? Like that for any two world leaders in any situation is a lot of time to be talking on the phone. I mean, most world leaders just don't speak that often. There's no reason to. They have their own countries to run. So, I mean, that's just, I was just asking, what the hell are they talking about? And at least in four of those calls, the official readouts did say they discussed the pandemic, but it doesn't say exactly what they discussed beyond like ways to mitigate it or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I would just like to know. And, and again, I talk about this in the book too. I give some other examples of how in certain situations, we know that Putin has in one specific situation, we know particularly that Putin has directly taken, Trump rather, has directly taken Putin's uh, instructions on certain things and we know how he deferred to him and that's all quite public so to me it's this again we're talking about something that's just consistent with his behavior and usually to me the way people have acted previously is the way they're going to act in the future and the way they're going to act in the present and they're talking nine times during this pandemic and as you mentioned i mean there were a lot of parallels some differences but a lot of very close parallels in the way putin and trump re responded and reacted to the pan respective pandemics in their own countries by basically denying them. I guess that's the main, the main thing that they had in common, denying them and uh, hesitating on imposing, you know, mitigation measures, the, all the NPIs and on pharmaceutical intervention. I mean, they both took that same tactic and maybe Putin took it to a little more extreme. You know, there was like four doctors who mysteriously fell out of windows after criticizing the <laughs> Russian government's actions but um, on regard to the pandemic, you know, as far as we know, that didn't exactly happen here. But but we do know Trump certainly tried to get a lot of people fired and tried to interfere in the workings of the, uh, you know, the government's medical establishment, the, the CDC and the FDA. I mean, he always was poking his heads in there. So he might not have been throwing people out of windows, but he definitely was trying to intimidate people and and uh, bend them to his will. So, you know, I did, did see a lot of parallels there, and I'm trying to make the case in the book without really a smoking gun, because there just isn't one, um, make the case that there was a real connection between 
the way Trump had reacted and interacted with Putin in the previous three years of his presidency and the way that he did during the pandemic, that there really was a connection. And again, you know, it's like people could say, oh, that's just speculation. Well, I think it's very informed speculation, but at the same time, no one else is even speculating on that. I mean, I just don't see anybody, and I didn't during 2020, not even 2021, asking the question, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like, why are you acting this way? Mm-hmm. I remember there was one article in the Washington Post that, that basically the headline was, why has Trump not tried to stop the pandemic? But, you know, one story, and that was it. And I certainly never heard anyone really ask him in those numerous press supposed briefings that he gave. Um, you know, no one just asked, like, why are you lying about all this stuff? Why are you lying? I mean, I just, I just wish someone would ask him that. I mean, this guy who just lies and lies and lies, particularly about something as serious as this, not one time did, did anyone just say, hey, why are you lying? <laughs> I mean, not that he would give an honest answer. He probably wouldn't. But, uh, you know, you should really ask the question. And they just didn't do it. You know, there was definitely sort of a lot of good things that happened in terms of the media and, and investigative reporting that went on. But in terms of the big picture, I, you know, it really was a, a pretty big failure, I think, on the part of our, our, our Washington media and national media. Well, that's the effect of the whole, you know, flooding the zone with shit is that the mainstream press is just like grasping at straws. They're at a loss to understand anything from day to day what the hell he was talking about. Um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just sort of one crazy thing after another. And they just respond to that and then move on. And no one really, no one, at least in that area of the, of the media, just, just, just took a step back and said, what's the big picture here? What is going on? Why is this happening? Why is he doing this? You know, what on earth is going on? And it just never really happened. You know, even though there was a lot of good reporting about things that were happening, the, the big picture and the big questions just were never really confronted. And they still aren't really being. I mean, there's other books, obviously, about the same topic that are out there. And some of them are, I think, pretty good. I mean, I've read all or part of, of a number of them. And some of them are good. But I don't think any of them really approach this, this question the, the way I did. And, you know, part of that might be because I, I approached it as an outsider. You know, it's like I deliberately took everything that's in this book is public reporting. You know, I have a thousand, almost a thousand footnotes. So, you know, I, nothing is based on some inside source. There was no information that I had to sit on for seven months to wait for my book to be published, you know, like a lot of other reporters did when these, you know, these books come out and there's these giant scoops in them. And you wonder, like, you must have had this months ago. Why didn't you tell us about it then? There's nothing in my book that did that. It's just so I think maybe just from my perspective as, as, as not a Washington insider in any stretch of the imagination, Maybe, maybe that's why I'm trying to look at this a little differently. You know, plus I just, as you know, from my previous books, just tend to look at things a little differently anyway. Um, maybe that's why, but it just was very disappointing to me that no one ever really <clears throat> tried to get to that point where they're just asking him, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you doing this? Well, if that concerted disinformation campaign coming from Russia, you know, was so instrumental as it seems in, uh, you know, him even getting elected here, uh, maybe he was reaching back out for help and advice to, uh, you know, deal with what was going on. And the only way he could uh, do what he wanted to do with it was to, you know, start a new disinformation campaign, which seems like is what happened, you know, not necessarily all from Russia, but it was, it's our media environment now is just insane. 
it's it's yeah it's really tough I and mean, that's what what you're just mentioning is that's why you know on the subtitle i also talk about his debt like how he paid his debt to putin and i've been asked several times like many times you know well, what is his debt what do you think he owes and to me it's like the answer is pretty obvious right it's like it got him elected it's a pretty big deal yeah <laughs> you know, that's a that's a pretty big prize to win you know the presidency of the united states and could he have done it without the russian help i don't know maybe but it certainly helped I don't think there's any question that it certainly helped. So to me, that's a pretty big debt and something that he would want to want to pay back and, and did pay back or tried to pay back, you know, for, for four years. Yeah, it makes sense. I want to ask you about um, the a reopening protests back last spring. Right. Right in the early days of the pandemic and how those kind of like serve as a precursor in and of themselves to something like January 6th. They definitely were. I mean, in some cases, at least I think in the, the case of the Michigan thing, if you remember, there was this, this plot against uh, the governor of Michigan to kidnap her or whatever. And it was literally some of the same people who were involved. So, right. and I think this is, this is the type of thing that you're hearing more information coming out about. Now, through some of the prosecutions, well, there's a, several hundred prosecutions that are happening of these people who stormed the Capitol, that there was a pretty heavy element of organization by some of these you know, right-wing groups. And I think what really needs to be investigated is who's behind these right-wing groups, the Proud Boys and all these other groups. Like, who's behind them? You know, they're not, they're not operating on a shoestring. Somebody's funding them. You know, I mean, I don't have the money to go traveling all over the country whenever I feel like it to do a protest, but these guys seem to turn up everywhere. So, you know, who's, who's funding them? Who's what's behind this? Uh, I, you know, I don't know, but I guarantee you it's something it's and somebody. And so I think, you know, there's, there's more than an overlap. There's really, it's really in many cases, the exact same people and, all these protests that you saw were really just leading up to this thing on January 6th. And that's probably not even the end. No, I mean, there are supposedly there's some similar pro insurrection rally being planned for sometime in September. um, That's been reported. I mean, I'll have the details of it right off the top of my head, but, but, you know, you could very well see this happen again. And, and, and like the violent rhetoric that we were talking about a little earlier and these school board meetings and so on, you know, they're really pushing the limits in a lot of these things with these guys, I mean, the other day, there's a guy getting up saying like, well, you know, these school boards, we're going to remove you by force if, you know, you don't do what we want. It's like, I mean, that's just fascism. And that's what we're really seeing. And to me, it's all just sort of laying the groundwork. It's laying the groundwork for some future violent action, which, you know, I'm afraid is inevitable. I don't know when it's going to happen, but, but I, I just think it's inevitable unless, you know, unless somebody does something to stop it. Yeah. I mean, we... We talked a lot about the 80s and 90s when we were off air when we first got on here, but it's just, it's so concerning if things really escalate in the social media environment. What if you had a live streamed Ruby Ridge type incident? I mean, what is that going to do propaganda wise? It could, you know, you have a few of those in a month and I just don't know what that would do to the fabric of America. I know. And I talk about in the book a little bit of how I think these these anti-lockdown so-called protests were themselves propaganda. You know, I mean, they were there to create this idea that somehow these these, you know, measures that were taken and nobody liked them. No one likes being 
you know, told where to go and what to do, of course. But, you know, you try to re- realize that sometimes these things are necessary. But Well, we could have those discussions if we could actually agree on certain points of reality first. But that's the thing. We're not ha- yes. having the discussions because we can't agree on whether this is real or not, whether the vaccine is a master plan to kill us or not, whether, I mean, you can't even have those discussions. Well, exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, maybe there's a legitimate discussion to be had about like, well, do, you know, do these mitigation measures work or, or do certain ones work and other ones don't, or do we really need to be a stay at home order or is there something more moderate or should it be more extreme? You know, who knows that that's a whole separate argument. But as you just said, we can't have that argument because we don't have even a common sense of what's actually happening in that we just have so many people saying like the whole thing isn't even really happening. So, of course, we don't need a lockdown or anything like a lockdown because it's all fake anyway. I mean, it's just. can't even talk about it. You can't have legitimate policy discussions. So it's so disheartening. I hate to be such a bummer, but it is kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> It's a what big do you, bummer. What do you think about the idea that this kind of presented a, a existential crisis to our economic model in that the only way to really stomp this out and deal with it would be to do such large public spending and to get so much of the population used to getting assistance from the government and kind of there might be have been the sea change in people's perception of what the government could do to help people. And that might've been such a threat to change people's perceptions that it was like worth it to go down this path. We're going down now to the, to the economic elites. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think one thing that this whole pandemic did expose and the economic measures that were taken was that, a lot of people don't like their jobs and don't see why they should be doing them. And I don't blame them a bit, yeah. you know? And, and I think it was sort of, it became sort of nakedly exposed. The idea that so much of our economy is based on forcing people to work in crappy dehumanizing situations and sometimes even physically dangerous situations for extremely inadequate compensation, you know, that you can barely live on. Um, and that's necessary for our economy to function. And, you know, they practically came out and said it, you know, the whole idea that, oh, you know, these, these uh, enhanced unemployment benefits are causing people to stay home and not work. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't think it really was true. And I think it was research showing that it, that wasn't really true. Maybe some people felt that way. I don't know. But, but, you know, I think what was really going on was people were realizing like, why do I have to do this crappy job? You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe I can do something that, that, that I'm better at, you know, maybe I can do something that makes more of a contribution to my life and everyone else's life. I mean, why shouldn't we be able to do stuff like that? Uh, I think that's a, that's a very good question that again, people have been asking for a long time, but, um, but I think again, this really sort of exposed how much of our economic system is based on this coercive model. And, you know, I think the stimulus payments is sort of, you know, inadequate as they were, they still were something. Mm -hmm. And, I think that, and the enhanced unemployment stuff, I think one thing that we may have learned from this is that one of the best social programs you can have is just give people money, just give them money to spend and, you know, it'll improve their lives and they'll be better people and have live better lives as a result. And, uh, 
you know, we'll see how long that continues. My, my gut feeling is it's probably not going to continue very long, but, but, you know, I, I hope it does because I think it's a good program and it seemed to have really worked and helped lots and lots and lots of people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The universal basic income thing was being, it was, I mean, Andrew Yang, you know, in the primaries before Corona really hit bad, he was talking about it a, a lot. I mean, that was like his main thing. And then all of a sudden, you kind of had experiments along the whole the whole year as as COVID just kind of raged with yeah. the with these um, unemployment insurance and then also the stimulus things as well. Yeah, and there's been some even out here in California. There's been some experiments with giving you know basic incomes to certain groups of people. I think there's we've been a couple that have been aimed at um, sort of adult foster kids, kids who are not kids, but people in their late teens, early twenties were coming out of foster care into the real world, you know, who obviously have tremendous disadvantages. And the idea is we're just going to give them a thousand dollars a month and see what they do. And it's, it's, it's so far, it's only a year or two old, but, but it's works, you know, I mean, there's good outcomes for a lot of these people who often wouldn't have much of a chance otherwise, you know, because they're coming from such difficult backgrounds and coming into environments where they don't have any money and that sort of thing. It's like, it's just give them money, give them money and see what happens, you know? So not, and again, we're not giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're just giving you enough, giving people enough to get, to get by. So you don't have to worry all the time because that's a real, you know, that's a killer stress and worry about money and things like that. It's just, it's, it's a very inhibiting force on people's creativity, on your ability to enjoy your life in a very positive way. I don't even mean like a hedonistic way. I just mean like living your life. If you're just worried all the time, it's really tough. Yeah. And there's health consequences to all that too. Yeah. There's health consequences. There's consequences in terms of your productivity. I mean, everything. And you can alleviate that by just giving people money. But, you know, we've always had this ethic in this country that everything has to be based on what someone quote unquote deserves. So you don't want to give money to the wrong people, the undeserving people. You don't want to help people who don't deserve it. I mean, but who's judging who deserves what? It's like, maybe just as human beings, we deserve to sort of live decently. And maybe then we'd have a somewhat better society, you know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. worth trying. But I think they were just terrified of the temporary measures that could really change people's entire perception since, you know, we're still living under the shadow of, of Reagan and those ideas. Um, but yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it too. Just, they were just terrified of, of people getting used to getting some help. Yeah. I mean, and you saw that in a lot of the, I don't know, I don't know did Tennessee do this. I know a lot of the sort of red States cut off these unemployment benefits early, like back in July. I mean, this is actually, I think they're supposed to end this week, but for everybody, but I know for, for, for a number of those States, they were just ended by the governor's, um, you know, several months ago. And that's why a lot of the anger from, you know, the, the people who were out of work or, you know, saying that you're, you know, this is the lockdowns are threatening my livelihood because they didn't have um, a perception that there was an alternative. So they saw it as just, I'm being totally uh, disenfranchised. Like, yeah. Yeah. But, there, you know, I mean, to me, there, there needed to be more done at the beginning, both mm-hmm. economically and in terms of the, the interventions that needed to happen to slow down the pandemic. Yeah. You know, we never really did. I always hear people talking about lockdowns. We had these lockdowns. We never, we never had a lockdown. I mean, 
Were you ever locked down where you couldn't leave your home? No. I mean, there were countries like in Europe. I mean, in certain countries in Europe or areas in Italy where you were literally not physically allowed to travel more than like 500 meters from your home. It never happened here. You know, here in L.A., it was one of the we were, I think, the first county, maybe in the first city to have what they called the time a safer at home order, though it was never really an order. It was more like a request. And but, you know, even under that, you were encouraged to go out, take walks, get exercise, walk the dog, whatever you needed to do, go to the grocery store safely. I mean, you, you weren't no, no one was locked down. That was ridiculous. So I really I'm always sort of object to this phrase lockdown because we never had one here. And what if we had not even a long one? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I've read and I'm certainly not going to pretend to be a virologist or epidemiologist, but those uh, some I've read have suggested that, you know, maybe a five or six week sort of real solid national lockdown at the very beginning, coupled with a massive economic assistance program. And we could have really brought this thing under control a lot faster. You know, it was never going to be eliminated. You know, this was always going to be bad. No mistake about that. But at the same time, as I said earlier, it just didn't have to be this bad, not even close. And if we've been willing to take those kind of measures at the very beginning, I think, you know, coupled with, again, like a national testing program, national contact tracing program, all coordinated nationwide, if that could have been done, and maybe it couldn't have been done by anybody, but but at least we should have tried. Well, and honestly, Trump, you know, like, like the saying, only Nixon could have gone to China. Trump probably could have would have been the only person who could have done something like that because he would have, uh, you know, placated his base and people who would be, you know, crying that this is authoritarianism, et cetera. He probably could have successfully, you know, had the personality to do it like, but right. maybe, but it just wasn't in his makeup. I'm yeah. Afraid. Versus like if, if someone like Biden, you know, or Obama did it now, the, the opposition would just, you know, it'd be. An yeah, it would be really hard. And that would be, you know, that's a problem. I would sort of think like, well, what, what if, what if Clinton had won the election? How would have she had responded to this? And I think it would have been a hell of a lot better and more sensibly. But could she really have convince the whole country to go along with, with the ex- more extreme measures that needed to happen, you know, it would have been a really tough situation, <laughs> really tough situation. Yeah. Because I mean, the, the whole reason that we, that we locked down to begin with was that the hospitals didn't get overwhelmed. Right. And they really didn't that first go around, but once, you know, whether I, I don't know what it was, I mean, short sidedness or whatever, but like he just completely, decided that we're just going to reopen everything. Uh, the Republican governors just fell completely into line with that. Mm-hmm. And then we just had, we just had a resurgence. And now we're in the situation where we just got lulled into thinking that we were okay. And then, and then Delta hit. So. Yep. Delta hit. And, and a lot of that is because you have so many people who, who, for some reason, again, it's a sort of oppositional mentality. You just don't want to take the vaccine. You know, and and if, you know, if we had been able to get to 85, 90 percent vaccination relatively quickly, again, I I think none of this stuff that you see now would be happening. You know, again, it's not to say the pandemic will be completely over, but it would be, I really am convinced, in a very manageable situation right now. You know, Mm -hmm. if we had that level of immunity, but, you know, you've got still 30 percent of the country just saying, I'm never going to do this. I'm not going to help. I'm not going to cooperate I'm not going to take this shot. I mean, it's so, it's so ridiculous. It's such a ridiculously trivial thing to do. Just get a shot or two shots. 
We've all had shots. Yeah. We've all had medicine. We've all taken things. That's what's scary. Like, what is going turned, on? It's turned so many people just an- they're open to this anti-vax idea period now. So what's what happens in the future, how they raise new children that they have now, like this is going to have way bigger impacts than COVID. I, I know that's a really scary thought, but I'm afraid it's, it's true that, that, you know, I mean, the anti-vax movement already existed in terms of like yeah. more traditional vaccines. It is very marginal. Yeah. Yeah. It was fairly marginal. I mean, you saw, I think in places like in Northern California and Oregon, there were places where you suddenly saw these weird outbreaks of measles among kids, like diseases that should just be almost totally suppressed suddenly were recurring because the parents weren't letting their kids get vaccinated. And, uh, you know, it's bizarre, but yeah, I mean, now we're risking seeing that on a much more widespread level. And then, you know, it's not going to be just COVID it's going to be mumps you know, and measles and rubella and God forbid polio or smallpox even, you know, I mean, who knows if you're not willing to take any vaccination, all these things are going to come back. And I don't think people today realize how horrible some of these diseases were. Right. Like I said, like I said earlier, my, my mother's 91 years old. She remembers all this stuff. I mean, she remembers, she thankfully never got polio, but, but she remembers like not being allowed to grow up in Massachusetts on the coast, not allowed to go to the beach because of fear of polio. You know, not allowed to like as a little kid play in like the piles of leaves that you rake. You know, you like to jump in the pile of leaves as a kid. You weren't allowed to do that because of polio, possible getting, possibly getting polio. You know, it's like all these things were out there and people got these diseases and their lives were just ruined or ended. And, and I don't think today we realize like how bad it was. But now we've got this movement where people aren't going to want to take vaccines against these diseases that have been, you know, almost eradicated from the face of the earth but not enough that they won't recur if people don't get immunized against them. That's something I've noticed people in my grandparents' generation, just having no question, getting the vaccines first, just doing it, no no question at all, but then the generations under them being really susceptible to the stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a little older than you guys because I remember when I was a kid, like when I was a little kid, I don't remember that much about being a little kid, but I do remember like, you know, being in school and there was a day I was like, okay, everyone has shots. to go to the nurse's office. Yeah. And you get your shots. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, we didn't even think it's just, I didn't think about it. My parents, it's just a thing that you did. So you go there, you get your shot out, kind of hurts a little, and then it's over. I mean, <laughs> but it's like, but now it's like this massive thing where like you get a shot and suddenly the world's going to end. If you get this shot, I just, I'm just, I'm just, my mind is just blown by all this. It's incredible. Well, I think what's important to understand is that it's not a, it doesn't require the total conversion of people. It's just enough to sow enough doubt that people are afraid. You know, a lot of these people aren't true believers necessarily. They just have enough doubt. They're afraid. Yeah. I think, I think there is a lot of that out there. People who just, they've heard so much of this baloney, you know, this misinformation that it just sort of gets in your head or their heads and like you say, they just become fearful of it. Like, oh, well, you know, I heard if I get this shot, you know, I might have a really bad reaction or I could get a heart attack or something. It's like, that's almost certainly not going to happen. I mean, the chances of that are so incredibly low, but yet that idea gets in your head and you're like, mm, I guess I'm just not going to do it. And that you know? seems, And that seems to have an even greater power than the fear of getting COVID. Which is really strange. But again, I mean, maybe that's part of the propaganda too, that like this idea that, oh, it's just the flu. And like, you know, maybe if you're, if you're vaccinated, it is. And for some people, even without the vaccination, it will be that way. But unfortunately for a lot, especially with the Delta variant, 
which seems to be causing a more severe degree of disease uh, in people, the unvaccinated people who get it, um, you know, it can be really bad. I mean, I've just I've seen plenty of reports of people dying who are in their 20s or 30s or 40s, mm-hmm. whereas you didn't see that many of them in the first, you know, the 2020 version of the, of right. the virus. Right. It was mostly older people. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was primarily older people. And, and then then even then it was, you know, your 50s or whatever. Occasionally you'd hear of someone younger getting it and having a really, you know, terrible result or fatality. But now it seems, you know, like it happens with some degree of frequency if you're not vaccinated. If you are vaccinated, it's extremely rare at any age to die of COVID. It happens, but just very, very rarely. But uh, Well, I, I can speak from personal experience right now on that one. I just got the, the original and I haven't got the Delta yet, so. Oh, you had, oh, you had the original uh, one also? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I got one on you, Sergio, so. Last thing that I wanted to ask you about is kind of the idea of Trump. It's almost like his followers and his supporters, he almost sees them as essentially disposable. I mean, you, you can kind of get that uh, feeling from just January 6th, um, because I really feel like that if they had taken a, managed to take some people prisoner in there, that Trump probably would have sent the army against them and used that as a means to... Uh, he he just did that. and when he said that you know he'd be in the front lines with them he'd march out there with them he did it he watched from the comfort of the Oval Office and, but then you also have the fact that he purposely in like pretty much the depths of the pandemic right as like it's getting really bad coming coming in from October to November he is having these huge events that are just super spreaders in the communities. So it's almost like he himself just views, um, he really views, he almost views them as disposable in and of themselves. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, he's a deranged psychopath. <laughs> so he's, he just does not care about anybody but himself, really. Uh, maybe his family to some extent until they become disposable to him also. But yeah, it's like he doesn't, I mean, when has he ever shown any real concern for anyone other than himself? And we've right. seen it over and over again. Even people who are just fanatically loyal to him, like his former, you know, fixer guy, Michael Cohen. Like as soon as that, as soon as that guy is no longer useful to him or poses a threat to him, he's out the door. You know, so and and he's he's an unperson all of a sudden, just a, a nobody. And so yeah, it's like nothing matters to him except what benefits him, and. uh yeah. I mean, he, you know, his supporters, he cares about them to the extent that they shower him with the attention and adulation that he deserves or thinks he deserves, I should say. But, um, but he doesn't care if they live or die. I mean, why would he? He just doesn't. It's, it means nothing to him. And I think that's been a big problem too in the media is like, I think, I think comprehending that it's really hard to comprehend if you're sort of, you know, I hate to use the word normal, but if you're like person with sort of the, no- the, 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 the standard issue like emotional and psychological toolbox, you feel some degree of empathy for other people. Like when you hear about someone who's in pain or hurting, you know, you feel bad and he just doesn't. (laughs) And I think that's really hard for people to relate to the idea that like to him, someone else's life is no different than like slapping a mosquito is to you or me. It's like, Oh, you just, it's just a nuisance that you get rid of. And, and that's what he feels. I really believe that's what he feels in his, 
his psyche just has no connection to other human beings at all. And I think it's very hard to relate to that for people because most of us are just used to those feelings that you experience all the time where you have at least some degree of caring for your fellow human being, you know, one would hope. Do you have any advice for um, how to interact and maybe like use people's distrust of authority and things like that to kind of get people out of some of these reality tunnels if they have family members or friends and you know it's so hard i don't even know if i have constructive advice on that i've been so frustrated and fortunately like you know i've i didn't have that many people to begin with in my circle who were that type of person but the few that existed i just kept cut out so you know, I, I haven't really been confronted with the idea of like, oh, I'm going to try to persuade this person or, oh, you really should get a vaccination. It's like, but I, I really wouldn't know what to do except just try to like as calmly as possible, just give you the facts and try to and try to appeal to your sense of empathy. If you're that type of person that like, do you have any caring for, for people? Like we live in a society, we live in a community. This this thing is not just the vaccinations. And the masking and all that, it's not just about you. It's not just about, oh, well, yeah. if you get the vaccination, you're going to be okay. It's about making everybody okay. So we can go on with our lives and we can function as a society because we're not going to function as a society when we're being torn apart by a disease. I mean, it's really hard and you have to rebuild and constantly tear down and rebuild. And and so so the reason to, to say, just for example, to get the vaccine is not just to protect yourself, though that's probably the best reason at the beginning to convince people but it's it's to protect other people you know to and to protect our whole society that we you know we we needed to function i think also a lot of people these days i think you know there's been a disconnection from that idea too that the idea you know the idea that somehow we are part of a society and a community and it has to function yeah and that and that can be a conservative idea as well yeah exactly it's like but for your individual well-being to function society has to function you know, but we've been fed this mythology that somehow, like, you know, the real American way is just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go out on the frontier and do it yourself. But it doesn't work that way in real life. Yeah. It just doesn't. I think a lot of people have kind of like missed the memo that we live in this incredibly complex technocratic society um, where you do have to defer to experts on certain things. Uh Professional opinions do count more than the guy you saw on YouTube in a lot of situations, especially life and death situations. We all like to speculate and weird ideas and reality tunnels, but you should listen to your doctor instead of the guy on YouTube when it's about you and your family's health. Yeah, I saw a quote from someone the other day. I don't even remember who said it, but but basically said, look, there's a big difference between a healthy distrust and skepticism of authority and you know, just knee jerk rejection of expertise. Yeah. You know, those are two different things. And I think people confuse them that somehow like you hear an expert, whether it's your own doctor or Dr. Fauci or whoever, you know, someone who knows more than you because they've spent their life working on it to, to listen to them, you know, that's different than just saying, Oh, I'm just going to accept authority and be a sheep and follow, you know, it's like, that's two totally different things. You can still be, you know, skeptical of authority and skeptical of what you're told and, and, and question, you know, question everything without at the same time, you know, falling into this hole, this pit of nihilism where, where nothing matters. And then the, the void is filled by these mm -hmm. lunatics on Facebook and YouTube and places like that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think 
I don't know. I mean, my it's, hope, my, yeah. my hope is that somehow that changes, but I don't, I mean, I wish I was brilliant enough to figure out how it would change. Well, I'm just trying to know, inform people of what's going on by, by writing about well, it. That's really it. it. I'll tell you, you know, I had remember my family, my mom was, uh, has been real reluctant to get the shot. And I think a lot of it has been because of just being on YouTube and with the influence of a few people that have been around her. Even after you had it. Well, I think that's she finally got it a couple of days ago, or yesterday, in fact, that we're recording this. And um, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I got it and that she saw that I was going to be okay, primarily because I got vaccinated. Yeah. Well, good, good. I think maybe then maybe something good came out of your being sick, which couldn't be any fun, no matter even if it was a mild case. You know, I mean, that's that sucks. I, I hate getting sick in any in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So, yeah. Jonathan, this has been awesome. I mean, I've really been a great privilege to speak with you. Uh, where can people find the book and uh, your other your other writings as well? Yeah, I mean, this book probably um, you can get, well, I know you can get it on Amazon. It's probably the best place. Or if you want to brave going indoors in an actual bookstore, you can get the hardcover edition in bookstores. Uh, on Amazon, you can get the Kindle version and the paperback version. Um, so that's what I would say. Just go on Amazon. Not that I'm plugging Amazon, but that's who's selling my book the most. Sure. But, uh, but also bookstores, you know, book, go into bookstores and if they don't have it, order it. Um, I would, I, you know, I love bookstores and I would love to support them, but yeah, that's, that's where you can get it. It's out there and it'll be out there for a long time if I have anything to say about it. So, um, yeah, that's what I'd say. And, and, you know, if you want to know more about me, you can go to jonathanbankin.net. And that's my website. And that has a little more information about me and my other books and links you can click on. I mean, some of the older books are out of print, but you can still probably buy them online from various sellers. Uh, you know, Amazon, a lot of sellers sell, sell the greatest conspiracies books and my other stuff. So, so yeah, you can check all that out. And um, I hope people do, you know, I think this is really important to, like I said earlier, change people's thinking about and raise awareness of what, what happened. Cause if we don't, it's going to, you know, eventually it'll just be memory hold. And I think that's what they want. I mean, the Delta variant, I can't really say anything good came out of it, but if anything possibly good came out of it, it's that we have to still keep thinking about this. Whereas I, I was really fearful earlier that it was just being, you know, sort of consigned to the dustbin of history. And that, that yeah. can't happen because if we do that, it's just going to happen again. Yeah. I think that um, we're going to remember this for a very, very long time. I mean, there's going to be pretty much like, I mean, there was pre nine 11 and post nine 11. There's pre COVID post COVID. I mean, that's, it's definitely going to be one of those historically um, life changing events, much like the Spanish flu was, you know? Exactly. Exactly. But I think, you know, I think the same people who wanted to deny that it was happening in the first place will want to deny that it ever happened. Yeah. That's, that's always a possibility. Um, especially when it comes to something like history. All right. Um, we're going to go ahead and close out the show, guys. Uh, just a reminder that um, we are still have some slots available for the in-person um, at uh, Strange Realities Conference October 15th through the 17th here in Nashville, Tennessee, and also online. And uh, those tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. There's a link there. Uh, don't forget, uh, we are actually requiring uh, vaccination cards and our proof of negative tests within 72 hours. So just be aware that we are doing that just like everybody else is. 
And uh, Sergio can tell us tell you where to find our Patreon if you want to help us out on there. If you want to continue some of these discussions, you can go over to patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where for $5 a month, you get an extra episode every week. And at the $10 level, you get to join our mystic crew of Conspiranormal and hang out with us on Zoom, where we have exclusive presentations and uh, give you a chance to meet some of our guests. For the $20 and up level, you get to join the ancient circle of strange realities and learn all of the secret mysteries of the universe, as well as an exclusive t-shirt. That's all at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Okay. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. I want to thank Jonathan Vankin for joining us tonight, and uh, we will be back next time. Uh, Steve Stockton will be joining us on Conspiranormal. If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel Conspiranormal Podcast Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 